Hello, welcome to ENT in a Nutshell. My name is Jason Barnes, and today we're here with Dr. Matt Carlson to discuss otosclerosis. Dr. Carlson, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Otosclerosis, uh, we'll just jump right in and talk about the presentation. When someone presents to your clinic and they have otosclerosis, what are some of the common findings that you see? So most people uh, present with a progressive hearing loss. Oftentimes, they'll have a family history of uh, somebody else in their family with hearing loss, and they'll often endorse uh, that their family members also had surgery, too. So I would say that uh, approximately 50% of patients will report a family history of hearing loss as well. The hearing loss typically presents asymmetrical. It's very rare that they'll say they have equal hearing loss in both ears. And the, the most important thing that you'll find on your testing is a, usually a conductive hearing loss or mixed hearing loss. And on examination, your otoscopic examination is generally uh, normal. Going more into the presentation and finding some things that you'll see, there are some uh, more specific things that some textbooks talk about. Uh, what's a physical exam finding that you might see but you don't often see? Yeah, I think there's some uh, some features of the disease I think are uh, worthwhile talking about. Um, so the first thing I'm going to talk about is the audiogram and the, audiomet uh, the audiometric findings. So otosclerosis typically presents with a conductive hearing loss, but you can also have mixed hearing loss. And again, it's often asymmetrical if you have bilateral involvement. Bilateral involvement probably occurs in about 40 to 50% of people, depending on what source or publication you read. Most commonly, the conductive hearing loss begins in low frequencies, but over time it will involve more frequencies and it will be more severe. There's a characteristic, what's called the Carhartt notch, that you can see on an audiogram. And a Carhartt notch is an artificial reduction or worsening of bone conduction frequencies centered on 2,000 hertz on the audiogram. So what does that look like on an audiogram? You'll look at your bone lines and you'll see that it looks like they actually have a sensory neural hearing loss. But in fact, they don't, and we'll talk about that in a second. It'll be centered on 2,000 hertz, and it can often be as much as 20 decibels. I think it's worthwhile mentioning that that's not sensitive or specific for otosclerosis. You can see a Carhartt notch in other disease conditions such as a cholesteatoma, perforation, tympanosclerosis, or other conditions that can result in um, a conductive hearing loss or mixed hearing loss. The reason we call it an artificial depression or loss is because it reverses after stapedectomy. That is, the Carhartt notch will actually reverse. So you're not actually improving somebody's sensory neural function. It's probably an artifact of testing that reverses that's uh, related to ossicular resonance. So those are the most uh, characteristic audiometric findings that you'll see in somebody with otosclerosis. When you talk about tympanometry, um, there's the Jirger classification of tympanometry, type A, and within that is AS and AD, type B and type C. Most people who present with otosclerosis have a type A tympanogram. That is, they have normal middle ear volumes and they have good or normal compliance of their eardrum. Uh, uncom uh, somewhat commonly still is an AS or an A shallow tympanogram. Uh, that's probably related to increasing stiffening of the acicular chain related to having fixation of your foot plate. On examination, again, as we alluded to earlier, your examination should basically be uh, that of a normal ear. Your eardrum should look nice. You shouldn't see uh, moringosclerosis or white plaques on your drum. If you see that, you start thinking about tympanosclerosis or another cause. And there is something called a Schwartz sign, and that's related to increasing metabolic activity in the underlying bone with a more rosy color of the uh, mucosa over the surface of the cochlear promontory. And on a very translucent eardrum, if you're squinting, you might be able to see increasing redness on the exam. And that's a commonly asked board question, although I have to admit, clinically, you don't uh, commonly see it. 
And we talked a little bit about the audiogram. Can you tell us what the paracusis of Willis is? Yeah, paracusis of Willis is a, a phenomenon that's associated with otosclerosis, and that it's the idea, and probably about 30 to 50% of people, depending on the study you read, will sometimes report some uh, degree of this. Um, it's the idea that in background noise, people with conductive hearing loss, and specifically otosclerosis, might actually fare better than somebody without conductive hearing loss. And it's re, uh, related to the idea that the conductive hearing loss can uh, drown out the background noise. And in a noisy environment, the speaker will often elevate their voice to be heard. And so the reduction in background noise in, combined with the increased intensity of the speaker can create a situation where maybe somebody with otosclerosis could hear a little bit better when there's background noise. So in general, a person who presents to your clinic will have a conductive hearing loss. Uh, affects women more than men from about a two-to-one ratio, from my understanding. Um, and we can see that Carhartt notch, and, a, and sometimes you can see the Schwartzy sign, which is that kind of reddish hue through the tympanic membrane, but you don't really hang your hat on that. That's correct. Can you tell us more about the pathophysiology of otosclerosis? What causes this? So I think that's a great question. The thing I think to, um, when you're answering that question, you have to talk a little bit about the embryology also. So the, uh, the inner ear is embryologically uh, distinct as far as development as, uh, from the external ear and the middle ear as far as the ossicles go. The inner ear develops from the otic placode, which is a thickening that will, uh, result, that will have an invagination and create an otic vesicle. The otic vesicle, um, the mesenchyme of the otic vesicle will undergo endochondral ossification. Um, so the cartilage of that vesicle will become ossified. And areas that have incomplete ossification can have these metabolic rests of increased act metabolic activity or uh, bone turnover. After birth, the inner ear really has minimal metabolic activity or bone turnover. That explains why after an otocapsule fracture, for example, you don't actually reform new bone over that. In fact, you'll be able to see a temporal bone, an otocapsule fracture years later. It's because normally uh, the otocapsule bone doesn't have a lot of turnover. So otosclerosis is the condition of increasing metabolic acti activity and bony turnover. So the otocapsule, again, is formed separately from the, uh, the ossicles in particular. The malleus incus and stapes are, bore, are uh, derived from the first and second branchial arches. And the stapes footplate is embryologically unique in that the vestibular side or the medial side is actually created by the otocapsule bone or otocapsule um, lineage. And the external surface of the, of the footplate is derived from the second arch, uh, similar to the stapes superstructure. And that's why a disease that primarily or that only affects the otocapsule can also affect, technically affect the footplate and cause fixation. Some of the board questions I've seen have asked uh, specifically what aspect is affected by otosclerosis. Can you talk about where we more typically find this and other areas that can be affected by this process? Yeah, so I, I think it's worth backing up and saying that, uh, that histologically otosclerosis is actually very quite common, although clinically it's becoming less and less common. And the reason it's more um, prevalent histologically and not clinically is you can develop these otosclerotic plaques in different areas of the otocapsule, but if it doesn't involve the conductive mechanism, it might not cause a conductive hearing loss and bring it to clinical light. So um, the area of the otocapsule where there's a predilection for otosclerosis to develop and clinically manifest is the anterior part of the footplate, commonly called the fissula antifenestrum, which literally means the fissure before the window. And it's at this area where 
most commonly you'll see a, a heap of more white um, bony formation clinically, and uh, you get unipolar fixation of your foot plate. And is there a genetic aspect to this? So about, depending on what publication you read, about 40 or 50 percent of people will say that they have a family history of also having otosclerosis. Um, The inheritance pattern is variable, but the most common inheritance pattern is an autosomal dominant inheritance pattern. There's incomplete penetrance and variable expressivity. So that means that even if your parent had it and it was passed on to you, you might not manifest the disease, and the degree to which you manifest it is variable also. And is there something different about congenital otosclerosis versus those who present in their third, fourth, fifth decades? So when we talk about foot plate fixation or conductive hearing loss related to your stapes foot plate not moving, there's really three disease processes we're talking about. The first is congenital foot plate fixation. So the normal inner ear and how it interrelates with the foot plate, there's typically an annular ligament, and that allows mobility or movement or vibration between the ossicles and the foot plate in the inner ear. Congenital foot plate fixation is a situation where you never develop that annular ligament and that joint between your foot plate and your otocapsule, and so instead you just have a bone plate across there. Congenital foot plate fixation presents with conductive hearing loss since birth, Commonly, they'll be, uh, the, the child will be misdiagnosed with recurrent otitis media because there's a conductive hearing loss. Everybody assumes there's fluid there, but in fact, there's often not. The examination otherwise is commonly often normal, although the, there is an increased incidence of concurrent ossicular malformation. A, a subset of patients with atresia, external artery canal atresia, will, often, will also have congenital foot plate fixation within their constellation of their, of their uh, disease. So... Th- um, Patients with congenital foot plate fixation will also commonly manifest a maximal conductive hearing loss that is, does not change over time, in, in contrast to the other two conditions that we'll talk about next. Whenever you're thinking about congenital foot plate fixation, you always have to think about X-linked gusher. So anybody who's born with a large conductive hearing loss, and particularly if it's a male, you have to think about con- uh, potential associated inner ear malformation that's contributing to the conductive hearing loss. And the reason that's important is if you perform a stapedotomy on on a person with congenital conductive hearing loss, there's a risk of what's called a stapes gusher. Um, And that's the idea that the inner ear pressures of the perilymph uh, approximate that of the CSF pressures because there's an abnormal communication between the the brain, a subarachnoid space, and the inner ear. So if you open the the cochlea, you can so you can open the floodgates and you can have a large egress of fluid that can result in sensory neural hearing loss. So the general rule of thumb, or I wouldn't say the general rule of thumb, I would say what's really considered standard is to get a CT scan on anybody who's born with congenital hearing loss if you're considering performing a stapedectomy or stapedotomy on them. The second disease category that we're talking about is tympanosclerosis. Tympanosclerosis is the condition where a person develops recurrent middle ear infections and they develop those white plaques that you often see on the tympanic membrane. If those white plaques develop around the ossicles, you can get malleus fixation. You can also get foot plate fixation from that. The last condition that a person might develop at a young age is something called juvenile otosclerosis. That's in contrast to what we call typical otosclerosis in that the person develops it before the age of 18. That'll, it's very uncommon to develop in anybody under the age of 10. It can happen, but that's rare. And it's, again, bilateral, or sorry, it's, again, a progressive condition, and typically you don't manifest initially with a maximal conductive hearing loss. I've also heard that uh, otosclerosis is related to the measles virus. Is that true? 
So there's a lot of different theories about why it's developed, and also these theories are also used to explain why the prevalence has significantly decreased over time. And I will say that the jury's still out on a lot of this, but the idea behind the measles association is that um, there's been several studies that have shown um, measles um, virus in uh, perilymph that where PCR analysis has been performed, either RNA and DNA of the measles virus, and um, that has led several publications to theorize that the decline in the incidence of disease is related to the introduction of the MMR vaccination in the 1960s. You know, certainly the timing works out where you think it's true, and based on those studies that have measles um, uh, virus particulates in them would make you believe that it could be true, although I'll, there's still a lot of controversy about that. So we just talked about the pathophysiology, and I next wanted to talk about the workup for these patients. We talked about the audiogram with Carhartt's notch and a conductive hearing loss. We talked about uh, tympanometry with possible AS tympanometry. Although not always clinically re relevant, uh, we talk about the stapedial reflex, which I feel like is often tested. What would we see on this reflex in this condition? Stapedial reflex testing is a critical uh, aspect of the diagnostic workup. And um, the main reason is you help, it helps you distinguish from other conditions. So people with otosclerosis, by the time they come in, they'll have their conductive or mixed hearing loss, often in the low frequencies with their car heart notch. But you all should, should see absence to pedial reflexes. You can have what's called a biphasic or diphasic response where you'll see just a little blip on uh, when you try to activate the stapedial reflex with your acoustic signal, but more commonly the signal's absent. If you see somebody with conductive hearing loss and their reflexes are, are present, you have to think that it's probably a, a different condition and you should investigate it more. I think that's probably the, the most useful thing. When you talk about getting reflexes uh, and dis distinguishing it from another disease process, most commonly that's, co that's talked about distinguishing the condition of superior canal dehiscence. Superior canal dehiscence has its own symptom set that's uh, distinct from otosclerosis, but the one area of overlap is the ear bone gap and the hearing loss that you can get with these two conditions. In superior canal dehiscence, a, lar a large part of the ear bone gap is not necessarily related to a conductive hearing loss in the middle ear. It's what we call a so-called inner ear conductive hearing loss. And part of that's derived from an elevation or actually a more uh, hypersensitive bone line. So your bone line in superior canal dehiscence will often be zero or minus 10 in the low frequencies, which is unusual, particularly for an adult. And you can have an air bone gap. There's been reports of people performing middle ear exploration with stapedotomy on people with, otos with the superior canal dehiscence and having a failed result, which you can see why, because you're fi you weren't fixing the correct problem. And when you do the workup for these patients, how often do you get CT scans? Are they required? You talked about congenital, uh, but what's your approach to imaging for these folks? So I'll tell you that when you're, asking, when you're answering a board question, there's, it's a controversial topic, and you don't have to get one. You don't have to get a CT scan. I would say more and more people are getting CT scans. They're readily available, and they're diagnostic in at least 90-plus 90, 90 percent of times if you're getting a thin slice, you know, 0 0.4, 0 0.5 millimeter cut uh, temporal bone scan. You can see the otosclerotic uh, plaques on the scan, which is helpful. It's also helpful to make sure you don't have concomitant superior canal dehiscence, which rarely does happen. And sometimes you'll see other things that are important, such as an inner ear malformation, which, again, is very uncommon to see except for people who have congenital uh, conductive hearing loss. And then you can also look for things like malleus fixation or other things that might uh, influence how you'd approach the, the, the case. And what's the classic finding on CT for otosclerosis? 
So when we hear the word sclerosis, it makes us think that the area will be more hyperdense on a CT scan or more bone formation. But what's interesting is the otocapsule bone is the most dense bone in the human body. And so it's very hyperdense on a CT scan. With metabolic bony turnover with otosclerosis, it, you'll lay down sclerotic bone, but the sclerotic bone is still less dense than the otocapsule bone that you were born with. And so you'll actually see lucencies even after having what we call otosclerotic plaques. So most commonly, you'll see a lucency in anterior to the foot plate. That's most common. But you can also see it involving other parts of the otocapsule. With more advanced disease, it might actually surround the cochlea and create what's called a halo sign or ring sign, and that's a hyperlucency surrounding the entire cochlea. There's also, it's less commonly talked about, but you can get an internal artery canal diverticulum. You can get those randomly, so the, a person could get them sporadically, but it is associated with the condition of cavitary otosclerosis as well. Is there ever a role for MRI? MRI is frequently not used in the diagnostic workup of otosclerosis, with one, can, with one exception, I would say. It's the patient with very advanced mixed hearing loss, where you're wondering if they might benefit from a cochlear implant. With more advanced otosclerosis, we typically call more advanced otosclerosis where it involves the inner ear and causes sensory neural hearing loss. We call that retrofenestral otosclerosis or cochlear otosclerosis. In those conditions, sometimes the bone can actually, um, uh, the inner ear can be displaced with bone. And so it could be difficult to get a cochlear implant electrode in those patients. And so if you get an MRI and you get the heavily T2-weighted images on thin slice, it'll, it allows you to see beyond just ossification of what you see on a CT scan. You can actually see displacement of the perilymph. So it's much more sensitive to fibrosis or early ossification than a CT scan would be. So once you've seen this patient, you've done the appropriate workup, you feel 99 or 100% confident that they have otosclerosis, what's the treatment for these patients? So if a person has unilateral here, unilateral otosclerosis and their ear is very good, or if their otosclerosis is very mild, a lot of patients will actually do nothing. They won't, uh, they won't require any intervention. They won't seek it themselves. When a hearing loss becomes more advanced, or particularly when it involves both ears, patients have uh, essentially two options beyond just observing it. They can either have a hearing aid or they can have surgery to correct it. The benefit of a hearing aid is there's basically no risk to using a hearing aid. There are drawbacks to a hearing aid. They're typically not covered by insurance. A good hearing aid can be upwards of three to $5,000. You have to replace them every five to six years on average. You get something called occlusion effect, which is just the feeling of something being in your ear all the time. Uncommonly, people can get recurrent otitis from having, uh, recurrent otitis externa from having a hearing aid. Um, and so those are the mo main drawbacks. Hearing aid doesn't give normal hearing, and it also can have feedback. But again, there's no risk to it. Most people who do good with hearing aids have less than or uh, their hearing isn't worse than about 70 or 80 dB at any frequency. And they're usually their word recognition score has to be better than 50 or 60%. If it's worse than that, typically a hearing aid won't provide any benefit. The other option is uh, middle ear exploration with stapedotomy. So that's the procedure where you'd uh, raise a tympanomatal flap and you look in the middle ear, confirm that the third bone of hearing isn't moving, and you'd replace uh, the, the third bone of hearing with a, with a stapes prosthesis. Um, the success rate for middle ear exploration with stapedotomy in somebody with otosclerosis is um, there's a, been a high bar set based on historical precedent from the era where certain stapes surgeons would perform 20,000 procedures in their, in their lifetime. And that bar is set at the benchmark of 90% uh, of people will have less than a 10 dB airbone gap closure. Um, the risk of sens uh, severe or profound sensory hearing loss from the procedure is 1%.
the lifetime risk of requ requiring a revision surgery is prox approximately 10%. The success rate of the procedure is very high, though. And what are the possible complications involved with the procedure? So there are some things that are very common, and there are some things that are very uncommon. Unfortunately, the bad things are rare, just like most uh, surgical procedures. Having discusi or taste disturbance after surgery is actually not uncommon. I would say at least 20 or 30 percent of people will will say they have it if you ask them about it. Sometimes it doesn't bother enough for them to bring it up themselves, but if you ask them about it, at least 20 or 30%. But by about a year, that settles, and only about uh, 2 to 5% of people will actually report dyscusia at about a year. You could have a tear in the tympanic membrane with a perforation. That's very rare to have. I would say that the risk of that's 1% or less. You could have dizziness either immediately after the procedure or in a delayed way, a delayed presentation. We can talk about that in a little bit also. The risk of permanent facial nerve injury is very, very rare. I would say probably on the order of one in a thousand for the for a standard mineral exploration with stapedotomy. And the risk of temporary weakness is probably one in a hundred. And that could be related to direct, you know, some level of direct injury during the procedure. But even more commonly, it's a delayed presentation and it might be a reactivation of the herpes virus that you can commonly see with chronic ear surgery and other ear, ear surgeries as well. That will typically come back again. Again, the risk of profound hearing loss is 1% where you actually develop non-useful hearing after, as a result of the procedure. Meningitis is an extremely rare event and that would be probably in somebody you performed a middle exploration stapedotomy with recurrent otitis media. Dizziness can be immediate, and that's commonly what we call a serious labyrinthitis, and that can just be, frankly, from mucking around in the inner ear, performing later sapidotomy or performing drilling. That typically resides over a short period of time. You can also have reparative granuloma, which, which is a diagnosis of that that's actually quite controversial. It, it was pro it's probably more of historical um, interest in that it was re most likely related to a gel foam plunger prosthesis that was used more than anything else. Today, it's quite uncommon to develop that. You can have a perilymphatic fistula, which is also quite uncommon. That's related to inner ear fluid leaking out and causing dizziness with or without hearing loss. You could also have a separative labyrinthitis, and that would be related to an infection that would increase the risk of a patient having meningitis. And those would be your main presentations for dizziness in the short or intermediate term. A long prosthesis causing dizziness is also controversial. A lot of people will say, I've seen very deep prostheses without causing problems, but there certainly are some patients when you're performing stapedotomy with a 4.75 or longer prosthesis that might develop dizziness from having a very long prosthesis. And some other complications, um, maybe more long-term, uh, regarding the incus. So a failed procedure, so if a person uh, has a persistent conductive hearing loss after stapes surgery, in my opinion, the most important question to ask is, did you get benefit after the surgery for at least a, a period of several months at minimum? And more commonly, did you have a good benefit for several years and then you lost it? The person who wakes up and has a persistent conductive hearing loss immediately after surgery that never gets better, you have to wonder if the initial diagnosis was correct. In those people, I would definitely get a CT scan because you want to look for superior canal dehiscence or another cause for a persistent conductive hearing loss. But then you have to wonder, was there not a good crimp? Was it not placed in the stapedotomy? Did it get displaced afterwards if you never had immediate benefit? The people that had really good benefit for several years and then had a loss most commonly will be related to an incus necrosis. So the shepherd's hook of the piston will sit around the incus, but over time those micro-movements can compromise the vascularity of the incus and you can have incus necrosis where it becomes basically uh, um, the attachment between your prosthesis and your incus is lost and you have a conductive hearing loss. 
these patients are often a very good candidates for revision surgery because they did good in the beginning, and you can um, restore that uh, that hearing either by using a different type of prosthesis or rebuilding a portion of the incus with bone cement, et cetera. There's a lot of different ways to overcome that. But again, I think the most important question if you have persistent conductive hearing loss afterwards is to ask about the timing because that can really distinguish different types of processes. And we did talk about surgical intervention. It's probably worth mentioning the medical therapies that are sometimes suggested in the setting of otosclerosis. You know, it was very common in the in the 50s and 60s in particular that fluoride was used. Fluoride was, um, this, is, this uh, predates my practice, of course, but um, my understanding in talking to people who lived through the era of, uh, of the 60s and 70s is that fluoride was ubiquitously prescribed for people. There are some side effects to using it, and it probably doesn't provide a lot of benefit for, for many people. There are some conditions that some practitioners or providers will still uh, prescribe uh, fluoride treatment. Again, most don't, but those situations are a rapidly progressive otosclerosis where the hearing loss is getting bad pretty fast, or people with co uh, uh, more advanced inner ear symptoms, so progressive um, mixed hearing loss or vestibular symptoms. The other therapy that people will use also is bisphosphonates. Bisphosphonate is a pyrophosphate analog, so the during bony metabolism, the osteoclast, osteoblast will intake this and actually will precipitate apoptosis, so you reduce bony turnover. Um, I would say that um, there are certain centers that are using bisphosphonates, but overall, as a specialty, I would say that that's also not commonly prescribed. So just to summarize, I thought I'd go through all of these um, subtopics. So in folks with otosclerosis, they'll present with a conductive hearing loss. We'll get an audiogram that will show a conductive hearing loss and possibly Carhartt's notch. On physical exam, you might see that Swartzy sign. The pathophysiology is a bony dyscrasia that involves the otic capsule, more specifically the anterior aspect of the stapes footplate. Differential diagnosis includes really anything with a conductive hearing loss, and one that you mentioned more than once was superior semicircular canal dehiscence. The workup includes audiogram, tympanometry, stapedial reflex, and sometimes a CT scan. And treatment is almost always, in the patient that's selected correctly, a stapedotomy. Outcomes we expect are that most folks will close their airbone gap to about 10 dB. And folks, in my experience, uh, from what I've seen in your clinic, are usually pretty happy with this. Anything worth mentioning that we haven't talked about? No, I think that's a good summary of the whole thing. Um, I do think that one last thing I'll add is, is uh, what something you just mentioned right now, and selecting a g good candidate. We always say for these sorts of elective procedures, you always want to operate on somebody with more severe symptoms because they'll notice their improvement more. And so typically somebody we operate on, uh, you want to have them to have an airbone gap in the low and mid frequencies of at least 20 decibels, but more commonly 30 or 40. Those patients are going to notice their improvement a lot more. If you operate on somebody with a 10 dB airbone gap, even if you have a perfect result, they'll be underwhelmed by their result because they only improve by 10 decibels. And in a lot of situations, you'd say that, well, that's not even worth uh, putting them through a procedure for that. So I think that's probably the only other thing that I would add that I think is uh, clinically useful. We talk, we talk about using tuning forks to confirm our audiogram, but also might help you distinguish a person who's a candidate and who's not. We usually operate on people who flip their forks. That means that, so their Weber will usually lateralize to their affected ear because they have a greater conductive hearing loss on that side, and their Rene test will show bone greater than air. That usually indicates, if you're using a 512 hertz tuning fork, that usually indicates that in the low and mid frequencies, they at least have a 20 to 25 decibel air bone gap. I think that's probably the only other thing I can think that would be useful to add to this. Awesome. Thanks so much, Dr. Carlson. Thanks for having me. 
It's now time to bring this episode to a close, but before we do, I wanted to end with some questions. As always, I'll ask a question, wait a few seconds so that you can press pause or think of the answer on your own, and then I'll give the answer. So the first question is, describe the unique embryology of the stapes footplate and its implications for the development of otosclerosis. So the inner surface of the stapes footplate is derived from the otic placode, which is different from the outer surface, which comes from the second branchial arch. This is why a disease of the otic capsule affects the stapes footplate. The second question is, describe the hallmark audiologic features of otosclerosis. Typically with otosclerosis, early disease will manifest as a low frequency air bone gap, but what's commonly talked about is the Carhartt notch, which is seen at 2000 Hertz. And this is an artificial depression of the bone thresholds. Stapedial reflexes are generally absent here. Our third question, what is the most common location that otosclerosis develops and how is this seen radiographically? Otosclerosis most commonly develops at the anterior portion of the stapes footplate, also known as the fasula antifenestra. And on high-resolution temporal bone CT scan, you'll see a lucency in that area. When this becomes more diffuse, this can be seen surrounding the cochlea and can be referred to as the halo sign or the ring sign. And finally, what are the treatment options for otosclerosis? The two main options for the treatment of otosclerosis are the use of hearing aids and stapedotomy or stapedectomy. And stapedotomy can typically result in the closure of the air bone gap to less than 10 decibels. Thanks again so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.